thankful today. If you have your Bible, I'm in Luke, the 22nd chapter today. Luke 22. Luke 22 today. If you have your Bible. It's great to see you back in the Lord's house today as we continue to celebrate our risen, resurrected Savior. Amen? And all that He means for us. We talked about last week why Easter matters, and we gave three solid reasons why Easter matters so much. Number one, because the resurrection is literally true. Jesus really did rise from the dead. He came out of the grave on the third day, amen? And we celebrated that. And we said if there were no resurrection, there'd be no Bible and there'd be no church. But the reason we have a church and the reason someone recorded the words of the Bible was because of this historical truth. Jesus really did rise from the grave on the third day. It's literally true. And number two, it is spiritually significant. Amen? The fact that Jesus rose from the dead meant that everything he claimed was true. And he claimed that he could forgive sins and restore us in our relationship with God. And we know it's true because Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? And number three, it is eternally important. Amen. The resurrection is important because only Jesus can do those things. Only Jesus can reconcile us to God. But because Jesus rose from the dead, death is no longer the gateway to hell. It is the doorway to heaven for those who trust in God. Christ. Well, today I want to talk to you today, if you are a, someone who is trying to follow Jesus with all your heart, but sometimes you find yourself struggling in that attempt. We talked last week about struggling with doubt. Say doubt. And we said if you struggle to believe the resurrection, you would find yourself in good company because the very first disciples struggled to believe it was true until Jesus appeared to them and showed it to be so. Well, today, maybe you struggle not only with doubt, but maybe you struggle in some other areas. Well, if you struggle as a Christian, if you have ever faltered or stumbled in your attempt to follow Christ, I want to tell you the Easter story contains one guy that you can really relate to, and he would be able to really relate to you, and his name is Simon Peter. Amen? I don't know about you, but for many of you, if I had to guess, Peter is probably your favorite disciple. He's probably one of your favorite apostles. He's one of mine, and I think the reason we love him so much is because we relate to him so well. Amen? Peter always says what everyone else is thinking but is too afraid to say. Now, maybe you have a friend like that who was always willing to just say what everybody was thinking. Maybe you are. If you don't have a friend like that, maybe you are the friend like that. Amen? Yeah, you just say it. You just go ahead and declare what everyone else is thinking anyway. Some of us really relate to Peter because Peter always seems to be able to bail us out whenever we're feeling bad about ourselves. We read his story and suddenly we find comfort and reassurance and we think if someone like Peter could be in the company of the apostles, then maybe there's hope for the likes of you and me. Amen? Luke chapter 22, we pick up the story. And this is the part of the story where he really, well, let's say it this way, he's really relatable <laughs> because we see his failure written in the words of Scripture in Technicolor. And it's, it's right there for all of us to see. If you have your Bible, Luke 22, beginning in verse 31, Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired or asked to sift all of you as wheat but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. 
Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. When some of them there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with them, verse 57, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with them, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. May God bless the reading of his word. And as people said, Amen. Amen. I want to talk to you today. If you've ever struggled in your following of Jesus about what I think is a great word of comfort, and that is this passage. You say, Pastor, you find comfort in this passage? I find a great deal of comfort in the passage, and I think by the time we get to the end of it, I hope you will too. But I want you to notice the three great lessons in the text today, and the last one is the one that I really want you to hang your heart on today because it's one that you always can. But first, let's start with the bad news, and then we'll work our way to the good news. I want to end on the good news. How about you? Say, the good news. Amen. I want to leave encouraged. Well, let's start with the bad news. The bad news is you find in this passage it opens with the sieve of Satan. Say that with me. The sieve of Satan. Some of you know what a sieve is. You probably played with one when you were a child. If you went to the beach, it's a little screen and you would put soil on it or sand on it and you would shake the sand and the sand would fall through but anything large would be kept on top and that's how you would get the sand clean. Well, in the day of of Jesus, a sieve was used for lots of things. It was often used whenever you would thresh wheat or thresh grain. You would take the grain and you would put it on top of this sieve or this screen and you would shake the screen back and forth. And the the grain would remain in the sieve, but everything small, everything tiny would fall through the sieve and pass through it below and it would fall through. And only the good grain, the wheat or the corn, would stay in the filter. And you would separate the wheat from the chaff, what was usable from what needed to be discarded, what was valuable from what was worthless. And the way to separate those two things was to sift it. Some of you ladies still have a flour sifter, right? 
right? Uh, at home, you make biscuits with that. You sift the flour, and it gets the lumps out, right? You sift it. Well, that's the term being used here. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. I want you to notice in the passage, first something about the enemy, then something about ourselves, and then finally something about Jesus. And I want you to get these in your heart today. Number one, let's notice something about Satan. And it is the sifting of Satan, the sieve that he comes to bring to us. The first thing you notice in the passage is the strength of Satan. Go back there. Satan's strength. Let's talk about that. He is a strong adversary. The, the, the devil is a formidable foe. How many of you would agree with that? Amen. God's a good God, but the devil is a good devil. He's very good at what he does. He's a very strong opponent. The Bible warns us about that. Now, we don't need to fear him. We don't need to be in terror of the enemy. The Lord Jesus has given us the tools to face him and the victory to overcome him. We understand that. And yet, we don't want to underestimate the enemy that we're up against because he is a real foe. Peter, who we're reading about in the story, is one of the people who warn us about that. Do you remember? In 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, like a roaring lion, goes about seeking whom he may devour. How did Peter know that? He had firsthand experience with the devil in the very passage we're reading about. Peter knew what it was like to face Satan. He knew what it was like to be sifted as wheat by the devil. He knew what that was like, this moment that he faces him here. Satan has a lot of power in the world we live in. The Bible is very clear about that. Uh, all, I won't look up all the verses today, but if you want the references, I've got them in my notes and I can show them to you. John 16, 11, Jesus calls him the prince or the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 4, he's called the God of this age. In Ephesians 2 and 2, he's called the ruler of the authority of the air. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 4, we're told that he is able to blind the mind of unbelievers. In 2 Timothy 2 and 25, we're told that he holds sinners in a snare or a trap until God releases them through the gospel. In the book of Job, we find out that he is able to take the life of Job's children when he was granted that. He was able to ruin Job's health. And Luke 13, 16 talks about how that the enemy can damage someone's health and that sometimes sickness is the direct result of an attack of the evil one. In Luke 11 and 18, it says that there were people who were tormented by demons that Satan sent to them. In Luke 22 and 3, we're told that the devil devil is the one who provoked people to do evil. Amen. The very passage we're reading, verse 3 says, Satan entered Judas who was numbered among the twelve. It was Satan who provoked Judas to betray the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. In Job 1.19, he can even call nat cause natural disasters. The Bible says that it was Satan who sent the wind that struck the four corners of the house where it fell, destroying Job's family. That was a natural disaster. And it occurred because it was caused by Satan. How many of you would agree he is a very dangerous foe. He's a very dangerous enemy today. You and I are up against a very dangerous foe and the Bible warns us of that. Not to terrify us but so we would take the threat seriously and anyone who takes Satan lightly is not very wise. 
Let me just say it that way. It's not very wise. Now, we live in a culture where people often will make fun of Satan. And I've even seen Christians make fun of the devil. Uh, a few years ago, there was a T-shirt trend that said, Satan is a nerd, and people were wearing shirts. And they thought because they were Christians and they had the authority of Jesus, they could just take Satan lightly. Well, you are a Christian and you are protected, but that doesn't mean you should take your enemy lightly. He is a very real threat. The Bible says in Jude 9 that the archangel Michael did not even bring a railing accusation. He did not revile or speak uh, like that of the devil. He simply said, the Lord rebuke you whenever he fought with him over the body of Moses. If even the archangel Michael didn't get smart mouthed with the devil, I'm not sure you should either. Do you hear me? It's understanding that this is a very powerful enemy who is ancient, who existed before humans ever existed. And he's not someone to be toyed with or played with. He is a very real enemy. So you notice Satan's strength in the passage. Say Satan's strength. Jesus says it very clearly in John 10.10. The thief does not come forth except to kill, to steal, and to destroy. He comes. That's his agenda. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he will do that if he has an opportunity in your life. Notice his strength. Number two, notice Satan's sifting. Say his sifting. He sifts him like wheat. That's what he's asked to do. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Notice the all of you. It's not just Simon. It's all of them. What does he want to do? Listen, he is trying to come against them so they will do what Judas just did. The goal of Satan in the passage is to turn every one of them into Judas. For all of them to be unfaithful like Judas was. To turn away from the Lord. To shipwreck their faith in Christ. And to not be a follower any longer. To turn away from Jesus. That's the goal. That's what he was after. In the Bible, wheat or grain is often sifted through a large strainer called a sieve. To sift as wheat is a metaphor for shaking someone apart or breaking someone down. You find this phrase in the Old Testament in the book of Amos. Amos chapter 9 and verse 9. He says, For I will give command and I will shake Israel along with the other nations like grain is shaken in a sieve and yet not one true kernel will be lost. He's telling Israel there's going to be a shaking that comes and anything that's not permanent is going to be shaken out and only the true will remain. Amen? I believe we're living in a last day shaking. How about you? We're living in a day and a time where the Bible warns us in the last days everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And I want to tell you, don't think it odd, don't think it strange if a shaking has come into your life because the Lord said it would be so in the last days. A shaking comes. What does it do? The enemy brings it in order to break you down. The enemy wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to shake you apart. He wants to damage you. He wants to destroy your faith. Well, why would the Lord allow something like that? Because God's good design in it is this. It is to separate the true from the false, the good from the bad. And he's shaking out some stuff in your life that doesn't need to be there. So that what is true and what is good and what is genuine may remain in your life. So don't be afraid if you're going through some shaking. The devil may intend it for evil, but God is going to use it for something good. Amen? Amen. 
So there is a shaking, there is a sifting that goes on and we're warned about that in this passage. It reminds us of the story of Job when Satan asked permission. Have you seen that? It says Satan has asked for you. Did you notice that? He asked permission. He had to go to God and get permission in order to do this and to touch him. That's very reminiscent of what you see in Job chapter 1 when the enemy has to come and ask God for permission to touch any part of Job's life. I imagine the accusation that Satan used was probably very similar. The, the, the devil told God in the book of Job, no wonder Job serves you. Look how you've blessed him. But if you remove those blessings... He will turn away from you. He will curse you to your face. And so the Lord allowed, he let the leash out just a little bit and he allowed Job to be touched. But he said, you can't touch his body. Finally, the enemy came back and said, if you let me touch his body, he'll lose his faith and he'll turn on you. And so the Lord let the leash out a little bit more and he was able to touch his body. But Job still did not turn away from the Lord. It's a similar passage here. Satan has asked for you. He has requested permission. The New American Standard says he has demanded. Wow. He had, the, the enemy was very stern on this. He wanted to do this. He was after these guys. He wanted to come against them. He desires to sift them. I wonder if he accused them like he did Job. Well, Jesus, the only reason they're serving you is because you benefit them. It's a blessing. It's a benefit to them to follow you. If you ever allow that benefit to be taken away, they will turn on you and they will deny you. And so the Lord allows the test to sift the wheat from the, the chaff. Here comes the sifting. Now this proved to be true in the case of Judas. Judas was not a true disciple. He was a false follower. And when he went into the sifting, he didn't make it. The sieve filtered him right out. Why? Because he was a devil. He was not true. He was not what he claimed to be. This was true in the case of Judas. And once the devil devoured one of them, the lion roared against the other 11 and he wanted to take them out and he thought that he'd be able to take them out just like he took Judas out. He wanted to destroy their faith. He wanted to sift them like wheat to prove they were chaff and not genuine grain. He wanted to prove they were hypocrites and false followers like Judas. Matthew Henry said, Satan desired to sift them by temptation. He endeavored by those troubles to draw them into sin, to put them into a loss as corn when it is sifted and to bring the chaff to the uppermost rather to shake out the wheat and leave nothing but the chaff. John Piper said we can imagine the picture like this. Satan has a big sieve with jagged edged wires forming a mesh with holes shaped like faithless men and women. And what he aims to do is throw people into this sieve and shake them around over those jagged edges until they are so torn and weak and desperate that they let go of their faith and fall through the sieve like faithless people. And they fall right into Satan's company. So the sifting of Peter and the others is Satan's effort to destroy their faith John Piper says I think that's exactly right when the enemy comes against us and suffering hits his attempt his plan is to destroy your faith to prove that your faith isn't genuine to prove that you're not what you claim to be that you don't really trust Christ that you're a false follower Scott Hubbard said for three years Jesus had stood between Peter and the dragon's mouth but now, 
he was leaving and Peter, like Job, would discover how much his strength had rested on the hidden shield of his Lord. For the first time, he would walk through the valley without the familiar comfort of his shepherd. He wouldn't be able to have Jesus physically present or standing right there or reassuring in the way that he had before. Now comes the hour of testing, the hour of trial. So notice we notice the, the, the shifting, the sifting of, of Satan. But number two, I want you to notice the weakness of Peter. Say that with me. The weakness. Of, so we've noticed something about Satan. He's strong and he's a sifter. He comes to destroy your faith. But I want you to notice something about Peter, and that is primarily his weakness. We have the strength of Satan, and then we have the weakness of Peter contrasted. Our human weakness is pictured in the person of Peter in the story. He shows us ourselves. If you want to know where you are in the story, you're right here. You are Simon Peter. This is us in the story. Amen? Here we are. The Bible tells us that Peter had been warned about his weakness. He was overconfident in his ability to stand for Christ when the going got tough. The Lord had warned him that he was weak, that he was no stronger than any of the others, and that he would fold up under pressure. But Peter didn't believe it. He denied it. He told the Lord, it's not going to happen to me. Verse 33, he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Peter did not believe that this would be true of him. And yet Jesus knew Peter better than he knew himself. This is human nature, isn't it? We often see the weakness and failure of other people and we think, I wouldn't be like them if I was in that circumstance. I would do better than they've done if I was in the same set of uh, issues that they're facing. I would, I would handle that better than they are handling that. Have you ever thought that? Hope you've never been brave enough to say it out loud. But most of us have thought it. Well, you know, if I was in their shoes, you don't have a clue what you would do until you were in their shoes. <laughs> Amen. We often think we know what we would do, but you don't really know until you're there, do you? The test, the sifting, shows you the truth about yourself. I want to tell you, we often imagine that we would do better than we actually do when trouble shows up in our lives. Here he is. Peter, self-confident. Lord, I'm willing to go with you. Human nature, we always think we're going to do better than we really do. I had an example of that this, this last week. On um, Sean's birthday, he wanted to try something new, so we went and tried a new sport. We tried something called foot golf. You ever tried foot golf? If you've had a hip replacement, I don't recommend it. Amen? It's not for you. It's not for you. Foot golf is like this. Imagine the game of soccer and the game of golf had a baby, and you would have foot golf. That's what it is. You play it with a soccer ball, but you play it on a golf course. And on the golf course, they've gone, and in addition to the little holes that the golf ball drops into, they've dug a bigger hole large enough for a soccer ball to roll off into, and they put a flag right in the middle. And you play the front nine, and there's two holes per uh Per golf hole, there's two holes. About halfway to the fairway, there's a hole. And then the other half, there's another one near the fairway. And so you go and you, you kick your soccer ball from the front green. You use the ladies' tees, unless you're really good. And then you, you kick off and you get as far as you can. And then you kick that soccer ball and you try to get it in that hole. And just like golf, you try to get it in as few shots as possible. Now, Shay and I have two boys who both play soccer. And we let them go first. And they were really good. And they could kick it far. And they could control the ball. And they could get it where they needed to get it. My ball, on the other hand, was hopelessly attracted to water. 
hopelessly attracted to water. It went in the pond. It went in the ditch. It went in the mud puddle. It went everywhere but where I wanted it to go. And while I'm out there playing foot golf, making a miser- being a miserable failure at it, I remember all the times this last three months I have sat in the bleachers at a soccer game while my two boys kicked that ball on the field. And from where I'm sitting in the bleachers, it looks so easy. It looks so simple. Why can't you get the ball down the field? Why can't you pass that ball and get it to the other player? Why can't you get that ball in that net? The net's wide and the ball is little. It shouldn't be that hard. Come on, guys, get it together out there. And I cheered and coached and instructed from the sideline. And it was easy to sit in the bleacher and wonder, why aren't they doing a better job of getting that ball down the field? But then I got out there on the field, and I tried to get the ball. And listen, there was nobody running at me trying to take the ball away from me. There was no competition. It was just me and a wide open field, and I still couldn't do it. You don't ever know until you get on the field. But I want to tell you today, sooner or later, every Christian is going to have their turn at foot golf. (laughs) Sooner or later, every Christian is going to have their moment in the fire. Every Christian is going to have a moment where where they are sifted by the enemy. Every Christian is going to face a moment where they are challenged by the evil one. Every Christian is going to face suffering and hardship and trial and test and temptation. And you don't know how you respond until you get in the moment because the test reveals the truth about who you are. And it's often, we're often not nearly as strong as we think we are or as good as we think we are until we get in the moment. Repeatedly, the Bible warns us about this. He says, let those who stand, what? Take heed lest lest you fall. He warns us whenever we see someone fall into sin that we should restore them with a spirit of gentleness so that we are not what? Likewise tempted. We are prone to fall in the same way they fell. So restore with gentleness lest you also be tempted. The Bible warns us about our human weakness. Warns us of it. William Barclay said his fault was clear. He had overconfidence in himself. He knew that he loved Jesus. That was never in doubt. And he thought all by himself he could face any situation that might arise. He thought he was stronger than Jesus knew him to be. We will only be safe when we replace confidence in ourselves with humility and understanding of our weakness and depend on Christ and Christ alone. Peter was already set up to fail. What do you mean? Well, I want you to notice some things Peter had wrong from the very beginning. Number one, Peter's already set up to fail. How do you know? Number one, he failed to pray. Say that with me. He failed to pray. Verse 40, Jesus takes him to Gethsemane and he says, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. He comes back in verse 45 and they are all asleep and he wakes them up and he says to them again, when he rose, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow and he said, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus said men ought to always pray and not to lose heart. If you don't pray, you will lose heart. If you don't pray, you will fall into temptation. If your prayer life isn't solid, you will not find the strength you need in the day of trouble. Notice that Jesus prayed. 
And the Bible says when he prayed, an angel stood by him and strengthened him. Jesus prayed and found strength, but the disciples did not pray. And so there was no angel, there was no strengthening, there was no moment to prepare them for the trial they were about to step into. I want to tell you this is why it's important to pray every day because you don't know any day what that day might hold. And so you want to start that day like Jesus did in prayer so God can strengthen you for whatever you might encounter when you leave the house that day or sometimes before you leave the house that day, amen? So what was his problem? Number one, he didn't pray. He failed to pray. And number two, he followed at a distance. Say that with me. He followed at a distance. The Bible warns us about this in verse 54. When they arrested Jesus, they, he said he followed at a distance. Peter had said he was going to stand true to Jesus. He should have been standing right beside him. He should have been at his elbow. He should have been arrested too. He should have refused. He should have stayed there with him if he was going to keep his promise, but he didn't. He followed at a safe distance. He follows, but he's making sure that he's sneaking around and nobody can see him. And he comes up and joins the high priest men when he gets there at the fire and they aren't really sure who he is or why he's there. He's playing both sides against the middle. He's following at a safe distance. Now we have to give Peter a little credit. Peter and John are probably the only two in the story who even make it to the trial. The others are already back at Mark's uh, mother's house huddled in a corner, fearing for arrest. So Peter at least made it to the trial, amen? Peter and John at least show up. This is a brave man. He at least shows up, but his courage will not stand the test of the night. You see the danger of distance. What do you mean, pastor? When you follow Jesus from a distance, you're about to get in trouble. Don't let anything cut in on you and your closeness to God. Don't let anything wedge in between you and your intimacy with Christ. Because if you do, it will cause you to fail the test when the day comes. He failed to pray. He followed at a distance. He's trying to save his conscience and save his reputation at the same time by following from a distance. Like Joseph of Arimathea, he's a secret disciple. That's not meant as a compliment. And this is the next step. When you stop praying privately, you will start compromising publicly. I'm going to say that again. When you stop praying privately, you will start compromising publicly. A failure in private will lead to a failure in public. He didn't pray, so he began to compromise. And then you get the third problem with him. What does he do? He warms himself at the world's fire. He, you find him in the company of these men who don't love Jesus and don't know Jesus, and he's trying to blend in with those men. Wow, here he is. He stopped praying, he became distant from his Lord, and now he's trying to blend in with the world. He's become a man pleaser. He thinks more about what others say than what Christ says about him. He's totally set up for the failure that he's about to experience. It's easy to boast about his courage in a living room of like-minded friends who follow Jesus. But now in the public face of a hostile crowd, his courage falters. He denies any knowledge of Jesus. Then he denies being a disciple of Jesus. And then on the third time, he swears that it is not so, that he doesn't know the man. One version says he cursed and swore an oath. Here he is trying to prove that he doesn't know the Lord. This is not a lapse of faith. This is a loss of courage. Say that with me. 
This is not a lapse of faith, but a loss of courage. I think that's important. I think that is vitally important to understand in this passage. Judas lost his faith. Peter lost his courage. He never lost his faith. Peter has not stopped believing that Jesus is the Son of God or the Messiah. His faith didn't fail. His courage failed in the moment because of his human weakness. This is Peter leaning on his own strength. This is Peter before the day of Pentecost when he's filled with the Holy Spirit and finds God's power. This is Peter on his own, and he doesn't look good, does he? But Peter is not a false follower. Peter has not turned away from Christ completely. His courage has failed. He makes a public denial, but Peter and Judas are not the same man. They are not guilty of the same crime. Don't confuse that in your mind. The Bible is very clear on that. Peter's was a lap, not a lapse of faith. It was a loss of courage. Say courage. The rooster crowed. The Lord looked at him, and Peter goes away weeping. Why did the Lord allow this? Well, like Peter, all of us face a great trial of faith so that we might be reminded of how weak we are in our own power and we might be reminded not to lean on our own strength ever. Just like me with a soccer ball at the Glen Lakes Golf Club on Monday afternoon, when we get moved out of the bleachers onto the playing field, we get a revelation about ourselves. We're not as strong as we think. In the crucible of hard trial, we're reminded how weak and frail we really are. We're forced to run back to God, our refuge and strength, our very present help in the time of trouble. We're forced to rely on God's power. We're forced to trust in God's promises. We're forced to rest in God's presence rather than the arm of the flesh. God's plan is to use these moments of trial and affliction to perfect and refine our faith. John Piper said God broke the back of Peter's pride and self-reliance so that night in the agony of Satan's sieve, but he did not let him go. He turned around and forgave him and restored him and strengthened his faith. Years later, Peter would write these words, Now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Do you notice that underlined part? The proven genuineness of your faith. Why does God allow trial? To prove the genuineness of your faith. Satan comes to disprove your faith. God allows the trial to prove your faith. The devil thinks he knows something about you, but Jesus really knows something about you. The devil looks at you from the outside and says, I don't think his faith is real, but God looks down at your heart from the inside and says, I know his faith is real. And he allows the trial and the test to prove, just like with Job, just like with Peter, that God's right and the devil's wrong. <laughs> and in the process, we learn something about ourselves and we learn something about our Savior. What do I learn about myself? That there is no good thing in my flesh. That I have no power or strength on my own. That I dare not lean on myself and be overconfident in my own ability. But I also learn something wonderful about my Savior. Amen? And we see that in this passage. Do you see it? Satan uses hardship to sift us like wheat, to destroy our faith and prove we don't really trust Christ. But God allows the trials for the opposite reason, to prove the genuineness of our faith. Why does this matter? Because, listen to me, our security does not depend on our human strength. 
Our security depends on our faith, our ability to persevere in the faith, to endure trusting Christ to the end. Those who endure to the end will be saved. Well, what causes us to endure? Being stronger than other people? No. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. The only way that anybody makes it home to heaven, the only way anybody makes it through hardship and trial, the only way anybody survives the sifting of Satan is not because they're strong, not because they're better than the rest, not because they're cut from a different cloth. The only reason anybody survives the shaking is because their faith has laid hold of Jesus and Jesus is able to keep us through the hottest trial or the strongest storm. The trial comes to prove the genuineness of your faith because your faith is the victory that overcomes the world because your faith is what grabs hold of Jesus and holds on during the trial. Amen. Lord, help us. So I want you to notice the last thing today, and that is the power of Christ. Say that with me. The power of Christ. The greatest verse in this entire passage is verse 32. He just told him, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. But look at what he says in verse 32. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But I have prayed for you. Say that with me. But I have prayed for you. No, I know Jesus prayed for them all collectively. John 17 said he did. But Peter Look, look, Jesus looks at Peter, and this time the word you in the Greek is in the singular. It's individual. Peter, Simon, I have prayed for you. He calls him by name. I prayed for you individually. That's a wonderful reminder. I want you to notice that. Notice Christ's prayer. Scott Hubbard says, What words could overcome the horror of hearing Satan has demanded to have you? Only one set of words could be greater than that. These words, but I have prayed for you, Simon. I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. It's wonderful if your pastor prays for you or your life group leader prays for you. It's wonderful if your mother prays for you. But I want to tell you how much more wonderful was it that Peter heard the Lord Jesus say, Peter, I have prayed for you. I, Jesus, the storm-stilling, sickness-killing, demon-destroying Son of God, I, Jesus, the Father's best beloved, the chosen one from heaven, the one God hears, always hears with pleasure. Peter, you're looking at the guy who always gets his prayer through. You're looking at one whom the Father cannot turn away, and I have prayed for you. Oh, glory to God, I feel my help coming on me this morning. I'm thankful today. I'm thankful for your prayers. Don't stop praying for me. I'm thankful for everybody praying. But I want to tell you today, if nobody's praying for you, somebody's still praying for you. If you can't name a human being who's calling your name, I know somebody who's still calling your name. Jesus looked at Simon and said, I have prayed for you. It's an individual prayer. Jesus prays for every one of us by name. Jesus knows my situation. Jesus sees my struggle. 
He is acquainted with my grief and familiar with my sorrow. The Bible says in Hebrews, I don't have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of my infirmity, but one who can sympathize with my weakness because he was tempted at every point like I am without sin. When Jesus sees me walk through hard times, he remembers when he walked through hard times and he knows what he needed in that hour and he gets down on his knees and says, Father, I know what he's feeling right now. I know what he's going through right now. I remember what that feels like right there and what he needs most right now is this kind of grace and this kind of help. Father, will you send that to him in this hour? And the Father says, yes, I will. And Jesus prays for me. And that's the greatest news that we could have today. Satan has demanded to have you, but I have prayed for you. Oh, hallelujah. Romans 8, 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Do you see it? Jesus is praying for us. Hebrews 7 and 25 the Word of God says it again. Therefore, He is able to save completely. The King James says, to the uttermost. He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives. Why? To intercede for them. Jesus is praying for us today. And that's wonderful news. I love that. Whether it's being rescued from our own sin like Peter or being brought through a darkness that is not our fault like Job, our deliverance rests on the prayers of Jesus. Our deliverance rests on the prayers of Jesus. Jesus didn't say to Peter, Satan has desired you, but I know how strong you are. Satan has asked for you, but I know you've got what it takes and you're going to make it. Jesus didn't say, Satan has desired to sift you, but I know you're a mighty man of valor and it's all going to come out all right. No, no. Jesus said, Satan has desired you, but I have prayed for you. Even Jesus' confidence was not in Peter. It was in his own prevailing prayer before the Father. <laughs> Are we kept by faith? No, we're kept through faith. We're kept by the power of God. Where do you find that? Peter, of all people, says that. In 1 Peter, he says that. He says, you and I are kept by the power of God through faith. My faith lays hold of it, but it's his power that does the keeping, not mine. We are kept by the power of Christ. Say that with me. We are kept by the power of Christ. What does Jesus pray for us? Maybe John 17 and 15 is a clue. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. That's exactly what Jesus prayed. Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Wow. How confident is Jesus that that prayer is going to be answered? Well, notice what he says. And when you have returned, he didn't say if you return. He said, when you return. <laughs> Jesus not only knew that Peter's courage was going to fail, he also knew that his faith would not. He knew that Peter would stumble, and yet he knew that Peter would not ultimately fall away. He fell down, but he didn't fall away. Do you see it? Can I tell you, it's possible to fall down and not fall away. Some of you have been there. 
It's possible for your courage to fail and your faith to stand true. Many of us have been there. We go through a hard trial and oftentimes in shame, I've had Christians come to me and say, Pastor, I'm ashamed of myself how anxious I am, how nervous I am about this. And I always look back and grab them by the hand and say, that's just because you're human. Does it mean I'm not a Christian? Doesn't mean any such a thing. Pastor, I'm nervous about going and having this test run. Of course you're nervous. You're a human being. Who wouldn't be nervous? Does that mean I'm not saved? It means no such thing. Run the devil off your shoulder. That's a lying devil telling you you're not saved because you're struggling with some anxiety and some fear about some difficult circumstances. It's bad enough to be sick. Don't let the devil make you doubt your salvation on top of it. Run him off. That anxiety does not mean that you have no faith. It means you're human. (laughs) What do you do? Even when your courage shakes, let your faith stand. Stand. Stand firm. Stand true. Many of us have had to walk through hard trials and difficulties. Many of us have lost courage and been frightened in the middle of those. Many of us battle with anxiety and worry and fear in the face of great stress and difficulty. What is our hope? Our hope is not that we're strong. Our hope is that Christ is praying for us. Christ is praying for us. And His power holds on to us. Peter was not spared the sifting. He was not kept from the trial. He was preserved through the trial. And many times, that's exactly what happens to us. And even though his courage folded up, his faith didn't fail. He did not become Judas. Jesus' intercession doesn't keep us from dark nights that nearly swallow us up, but it does keep us through the dark nights. If you're in the crucible, then like Peter, hope Pray and continue to huddle together with the other disillusioned, struggling disciples. Lean on Christ and stay in the church. Satan is going to sift Peter like wheat, but Jesus asked that in all the shaking, Peter's faith will not fall dead to the ground. And here's the, here is one key difference between Judas and Peter. Jesus was praying for Peter, and Jesus still held Peter even from the tomb. He's still holding him up and holding on to him. Wow. Jesus saw that he would deny him three times. He also saw that he would say, I love you three times in John 21. And Jesus not only saw his failure, Jesus saw his recovery. Jesus didn't just see the present. Jesus saw the future. He saw Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost and preaching a sermon that swept thousands into the kingdom of God. He saw Peter going down to Cornelius' house and introducing the Gentiles to the gospel of Jesus for the very first time. He saw Peter one day keeping that promise and being crucified upside down on his own cross, being faithful to Jesus even to the point of death. Jesus saw all of that. Other people will see the moment of your failure and they'll try to make that the postscript on your life. Jesus knew better. Jesus saw it all. He saw the future. And he knew Peter was worth the investment. He prayed for Peter. Wow. Peter stubbornly refused to succumb to despair like Judas did. He turns. He returns to Christ just like Jesus said he was. He would do. What's the last thing? Christ's prediction. And when you are turned again, restore your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Wow. Barclay wrote, Jesus did a very lovely thing to Peter. He said, when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. We cannot really help a man until we've been in the same furnace of affliction or the same abyss of shame that he's been in. It was said of Jesus, 
Hebrews 2 and 18. He can help others who we're going through because he's been through it himself. Jesus can help us. He's been where we are. To experience the shame of failure and disloyalty is not all loss because it gives us a sympathy and an understanding we would never win any other way. Jesus was confident that Peter would get back up again. He would go on to strengthen the other disciples. One reason the Lord allows us to suffer, testing, is so we can learn how to help others grow in their faith. 2 Corinthians 1 and 6, Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. Why does trial come? Number one, so we learn how to lean on Christ instead of ourselves. And number two, trial comes so we know how to help other people when they're struggling. I want to tell you, most of us like to think that we will be of most use to God in the areas of our strength. Lord, I've got these gifts. I've got these abilities. I've got these wonderful things that I can use in your kingdom. Will God use those? He'll use those. But let me tell you what God will use even more. God will use the places where you were broken and the places where you were wounded and the places where you failed and the places where you messed up because those places are the places you can connect with other people who are struggling and going through hardship. And God will use those oftentimes even more than your strengths and your gifts and your abilities. So what do we do? We bring all of it to Jesus and say, Lord, here I am at your disposal, and you can use any or all of it that you want to use. Amen? Stand with me all over the Lord's house today. I heard the story a few years ago about two little boys who were talking. Billy told Jimmy that his daddy had a list of men that he could whip and that his daddy's name was on the top of the list. Jimmy went home and told his daddy and said, Is that so? He said, That's what I heard. Jimmy's daddy went to Billy's daddy and knocked on the door and said, My son Jimmy and your son Billy had a conversation the other day. He said, Is that right? He said, Yeah. He said, Your boy told my boy you had a list of men that you could whip and that my name was on the top of the list. He said, Yeah, that's right. He said, Well, I don't think you can do it. What are you going to do about that? Jimmy's dad took his pen and said, Well, I guess I'll just mark your name off the list then. Are you struggling to follow Jesus? Do you find yourself to be full of weakness? Fear and anxiety and courage that often fails? Do you find that you often stumble maybe in the same place more often than you would like? Can I tell you the good news of the gospel today? As long as you will trust in Christ, as long as you will hold on to your confidence in Jesus, you will find this to be true. Jesus has never had anybody he's had to cross off the list. He doesn't, he's able to make anyone stand. He's able to cause anyone to make it. Will you trust Jesus? The victory that overcomes the world is not your human strength. It is your ability to trust the power of Christ. Because at the end of the day, it is the power of Jesus that makes us stand through the trial and the struggle. No flesh is going to glory in God's presence. No human is going to get credit. Whenever we cross over the threshold of glory, we will not be saying, look at me, 
I made it. I'm strong. I'm victorious. I'm God's man of faith and power. I'm God's woman of strength and valor. No, no. Every woman, every man who crosses into the kingdom says the same thing. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Grace, the strength, the power of God. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Your failure is not final unless you let it be. The righteous man will fall seven times, but he rises every time he falls. Pastor, I fell. Get up. That's what Christians do. The Bible doesn't say Christians never fall. The Bible says Christians don't stay down when they fall. Get up. I fell and the devil said I'm not a Christian. Get up and prove him wrong. (laughs) All you got to do to prove him wrong is get up. How many times? One more time than you fall. That's all it takes. Just one more. One more. But I fell seven, then get up seven. (laughs) Why? Because you trust in Christ. And you know that Christ is able to make you stand. And you trust in His power. The good news of the gospel is you're not enough. And that's okay. Because Jesus is more than enough. And He's able to make you stand. What did Paul say the hope was? The hope is Christ in you. The hope of glory. How am I going to make it to heaven? What's your hope of heaven? Christ in me. Not me. Christ in me. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. That's the bad news. Can I give you the good news? Jesus smiles back and says, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail it won't it won't your courage may lapse your knees may knock you may have moments that you're not proud of but as long as you will trust in Jesus your faith will not ultimately fail and you may fall down but you won't fall away if you'll keep trusting in Christ keep your confidence in the Lord Pastor, I've been through a hard trial. Good. I hope it taught you something. I hope it taught you how strong the devil is. I hope it taught you how weak you are. But more than all that, I hope it will teach you how strong Christ is. And that His promises are true. And that we can say with Paul, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. So when the enemy roars at you and brings hardship and trial and says, you are no match for me, you just look back at him and say, you are absolutely right. I am no match for you. But you are no match for Jesus. You are no match for my Savior. Oh, glory to God today. 
We are not kept because we are strong. We are kept because Christ is strong. We are not strong. We are weak. But in our weakness, we find our strength. And our strength is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Say it with me. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Bow your heart with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for some struggling Christian today who needs to slip out of a pew into this altar for a moment and lift their hands up and lift their head up and look to you for strength today. I pray for some believers today who are in the crucible of fire, who are in the hardship and the test, who are facing hard times and great difficulties. Lord, I pray today for my Christian friends today who the enemy has desired to sift like weed. I pray for my fellow believers today who are in the fire of hard trial today. And Lord, I pray for them that God, their faith would not fail. I stand with Jesus in prayer for them and I pray God that you would strengthen them, that you would uphold them. I pray God today that they wouldn't fail to pray, but they would watch and pray so that they don't fall into temptation. I pray God for them today that they would follow closely to Jesus, not at a distance, and let nothing cut in on their intimacy with God. I pray today, Lord, that they would be found in the company of Christ and not compromise and stand with the world. I pray, God, today for us that our faith would not fail. Lord, I pray today for those who are in the fire and the hot test today, who are wondering if they're going to make it out. I pray for the one today who feels like they're barely hanging on. They're hanging by a thread. Lord, may today they discover that that thread is the hem of your garment and they're going to make it. Lord, I pray today for those who are holding on to hope to realize that hope is holding on to them too. Lord Jesus, today help us to realize today that it is not our great faith. It is faith is our weak faith in a great Savior that keeps us today. Lord, may we rest in trust and hope in Christ, our great defender, our strong tower, our great lion of Judah, who roars back even more loudly than that roaring lion, the evil one. And may we find our confidence in him in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody give the Lord a hand of praise. Amen.